Welcome to History 605, the South Dakota State Historical Society's podcast, where we talk to historians, curators, filmmakers, artists, and authors about how they interpret the past. We can meditate and wonder whether our descendants, because I think they'll still be here, what they will think about us. And let us hope that at least they will give us the benefit of the doubt. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian and Director of the State Historical Society. Join me and our guests as we think historical. So it is most appropriate and fitting that in our first year of our second century that this should also be a year of reconciliation between the Indian people and the non-Indian people alike. History 605 is sponsored by the Groover Family Trust and done in partnership with South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Welcome to the show. Welcome to History 605. Today we have on our show Joe Starita. Joe is a retired professor in the College of Journalism and Mass Communications from the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. He formerly was a journalist for 13 years at the Miami Herald. His award-winning writing is focused on Native Americans in the Great Plains, and today we'll be talking to him about his book, I Am a Man, Chief Standing Bear's Journey for Justice. Joe, thanks for joining me today on History 605. It is a pleasure, and I'm honored to be your guest, and uh, I look forward to a fruitful conversation on a little-known but very important uh, Native American figure. Yes, he, he is far more important, I think, uh, in many ways, and I'm eager to introduce him to to more South Dakotans and more of the listeners of this podcast. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, uh, I've been long interested in, in many aspects of the things that you touch on in this book, uh, how people find their way to liberty, freedom, and exercising their human rights, and I love the book for that reason. Um, yeah. You frame up a great many of the questions in the account of Standing Bear. Uh, in fact, there's so much in common, for example, I was wondering, as I was reading the synopsis of the book about Standing Bear, uh, who's endured so much in order to bury his son with his ancestors, that it reminded me of the ancient Greek play Antigone by Sophocles, and how she struggled to win freedom to do the very same thing, um, for uh, very similar reasons, and was demanded yeah. of her by the traditions and by her gods and so forth, and her beliefs, at least in that play some 25, 2,400 years ago. Uh, but before we get into all that, I was wondering if we could set up the story a little bit. Um, and you, sure. uh, first off, the book is so well written, I wasn't surprised at all to dis discover that you were a journalism professor and had been a reporter. Um, but your, your dive into how Thomas Jefferson's vision of the American Republic uh, was very helpful, I think, for setting the scene. And I wonder... Yeah. If you can kind of share well, with us why that uh, was important to the book. Well, um, when you tell any story, particularly a, a nonfiction story, uh, it is really important to provide the context. Things don't happen in a vacuum. Things don't happen floating in space. And you owe it to the reader to place somebody, in this case Standing Bear, within the context of what was happening during the time that the story is being told. And Thomas Jefferson was the seminal figure 
not only in the Standing Bear story, but he was obviously a seminal figure in uh, in the history of the United States, having written uh, maybe the most important document we have at the age of 35. Uh, so you have to provide the context to the reader so they understand when somebody does something, uh, it is emerging from uh, this kind of, of, of historical soil, this kind of literary soil. So in the telling of Standing Bear, which is a story of moving from one place to another and being forced to move from one place to another, uh, you have to give the reader the sense of where that came from. And Thomas Jefferson, with his view of Jeffersonian democracy, is absolutely critical to providing that context. Thomas Jefferson was someone who believed that Jeffersonian democracy would pivot on two pillars. Pillar one would be an educated citizenry, and pillar two would be an agrarian society. Mm -hmm. That was his vision. That was his view. And uh, it's very important to establish that early on, because what happens with Standing Bear emerges from Thomas Jefferson's view of what kind of country he wanted to create as the third president of the United States. Yeah, and it's it's quite astonishing, really, that given he's such a sophisticated thinker, Thomas Jefferson is, um, and that looking back after all, of course, we have the hindsight of all the events and so forth that we've seen that have transpired from Lewis, from Lewis and Clark expedition to today that that really kind of argue against what Jefferson's vision was in many important ways. Um, yeah. How do you? What was the first kind of glaring, jarring thing that you found in your research that may have surprised you about what Thomas Jefferson ran into with um, American Indian policy and the tribes? Yeah. Well, I mean, it all began uh, in many ways with with Jefferson and the purchase of the Louisiana the, the Louisiana Purchase, which mm -hmm. was this you know massive the best real estate deal in the history of America. Mm -hmm. I mean, Thomas Jefferson negotiated a deal to get 828,000 square miles, basically the western United States, for three cents an acre, and that was a landmass that was larger than England, France, Portugal, Spain, Italy combined. Mm -hmm. And so he had both his vision of this educated citizenry building a new America based on agrarian society with more than 800,000 square miles to work with. The only problem was that much of these 800,000 square miles were inhabited by native tribes who had been here for 10,000 years. Mm -hmm. Thomas Jefferson grew up with a very romanticized notion of Native Americans. He studied them, he collected arrowheads, he was fascinated by them. But by the time he became president, by the time he acquired the the the, the uh, western united states uh there was something that happened and what happened was that uh over time this romanticism gave way to a more hard-edged reality and that hard-edged reality transformation was that the noble savage occupied millions of these acres and those acres needed to be transformed 
into sturdy, industrious American family farms. So something had to give. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, he saw natives not as romantic, noble figures, but as an entrenched impediment to Jeffersonian democracy. And in 1803, in a letter to the governor of the Indiana Territory, he couldn't have made more clear the evolution of his thinking. And in this letter, he basically spelled out his his revolving policy in detail. And that basically amounted to they were going to do everything possible to squeeze the Indian into smaller and smaller territories and to do everything they could to get their land, mm -hmm. including setting up trading posts on the border of Indian land and getting the Indian into debt to the extent that they would have to then sell their land or turn over their land. Uh, and that by and by, would free up this wonderfully rich, diverse forest, rivers, plains, fertile soil. And then he could fulfill his dream, once the natives were out of the way, he could fulfill his dream of transforming the western half of the United States into Jeffersonian democracy. All of these industrious family farms populated by hardworking, white, literate citizens. Mm-hmm. Well, and and the presidents after him more or less track along those lines, uh, particularly with, I guess, with Jackson with a change. Well, I, yes, much with Jackson, much more, uh, much more bloody lines. That yeah. uh, uh, yes, I, it was the forced removal. Right. It was the forced removal. It wasn't trying to induce them to sell their land or set up mm -hmm. trading posts to take it away. It was uh, getting them and marching them on the trail of tears uh, from. Uh, from, from the southeast United States into uh, what would later become Oklahoma. Right. But, uh, but as far as the Ponca are concerned, in many mm -hmm. ways, the, 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 the blurred part of that vision is that those people that he wanted were already there, and they were called the Ponca. The Ponca were exquisite agrarians. They were fantastic farmers. If it weren't for Standing Bear and his 750 Ponca encamped near the Nebraska-South Dakota border for more than a century, there would have been hundreds and hundreds of Jefferson's white settlers pushing across the Mississippi into the Louisiana Purchase Territory. They would have, they would have starved to death. They would have died. They had no idea how harsh... South Dakota and Nebraska winters are. And when they started flooding westward after the Civil War, they didn't know how to grow wheat, corn, barley, pumpkin, squash. The Ponca did. Mm -hmm. And they had transformed the Niobrara Valley into this lush farmland, is exactly what Jefferson wanted. And they were responsible for saving and feeding these starving white citizens who really were not equipped to farm this land, nor equipped to deal with the harsh summers and the harsh winters, the floods, the, uh, the blizzards, uh, right. everything that they encountered. Uh, but the Ponca were, and I always found that as a little bit ironic, that in some ways he was trying to get rid of the very people that he wanted to uh, inhabit this land. Well, uh, there's a lot of rich irony in your book. 
there's a lot of uh, rebound effects of what people design and then what they want, and then what they design comes back to to uh, bring its forces to bear in all kinds of ways, which I think is yes, the fascinating right. aspect of the book. Uh, but before we get there, I think it, it's worth mentioning all of the, you know, the wagon trains and so forth going forward. And as you state, the lack of knowledge of just basic farming that one has to, uh, what crop do you plant? When is the right time to plant? All these choices that um, are driven by the climate and the soil. Uh, you have to right. have some knowledge of that. So tribes like the Ponca have to be there in order to share their knowledge. So I see, yeah. I take uh, your point. Yeah. Right. And and one one truism, I think, one truism, the 100th meridian is a, an imaginary line that goes right down the center of the country. It splits South Dakota, it splits Nebraska. And it's kind of fascinating. And I studied this very carefully because, again, this is about context. I want to pull reader into the context. What is the land like? What is... Uh, the political situation, the economic situation uh, that is evolving as Standing Bear is making this forced march from his homeland to Oklahoma, and his people are dying, and he gets fed up and mm -hmm. for various reasons has to flee back. But it's, it's really important to note that one of the axisms, one of the truisms of life west of the 100th Meridian is adapt or perish adapt or perish. Everything has to adapt or perish. There is much less rain, so the tap roots of the plants go down much deeper to grab every last bit of water. Uh, the people have to. The Ponca were, were, were exceptional, as were most native tribes, at adapting to survive. Mm -hmm. And they had this rhythm of life that unfolded seamlessly every 12 months. They would plant all of their uh, crops, the corn, the pumpkins, the squash, the vegetables in, in, in April and May, and then they would go west on the buffalo hunt to get the, the protein and the meat that they would need for winter and the hides that they would need for their teepees. And uh, this, this kind of annual rhythm uh, was all part of surviving and adapting to the harsh conditions of the plains. And that's something you do if you've lived in a place for more than 100 years. But mm -hmm. it wasn't something that the first wave of whites were capable of doing, and many died as a result. Mm -hmm. Now, where exactly was the, the Ponca lands that uh, ultimately where he wants to live and so forth? Is that, that you mentioned the Niobrara? Is it on both sides of the South Dakota Nebraska line? To be, uh, they, they were primarily clustered <clears throat> along the Niobrara on the Nebraska side of the line, okay. uh, not far from where the Niobrara empties into the Missouri, mm -hmm. which is, of course, the border between North and South Dakota. And their sacred burial grounds were in the White Cliffs on the Missouri River. Okay. And those, they had seven sacred burial sites in those White Cliffs right along the South Dakota-Nebraska border, and there was little if anything, that was more sacred, more important, more meaningful to the Ponca than those burial sites. And that's true of, I would think, of all 562 federally recognized tribes in the United States. When, Sam, when Crazy Horse once was asked, where are your lands, his reply was, my lands are where my fathers lie buried. Mm -hmm. The burial site for natives was so important as a spiritual touching point as a geographic 
touching point that you can hardly overstate the importance of those burial grounds to Native people. Mm-hmm. Well, then, it, those cliffs now, as I'm thinking about that, right south of Yankton, South Dakota, and the Lewis and Clark Lake, yeah. is the, those are the cliffs. Okay, well, that's a good segue it's into... It's a beautiful part of the right, country. Right, right. Um, uh, the... Lewis and Clark Expedition, do they encounter the Ponca? Yes, the Lewis and Clark Expedition came to uh, the Ponca land, uh, that, that very uh, area that we just talked about, near the confluence of the Niobrara and Missouri River. And uh, these were men from the east who were used to thick forests and heavily wooded forests and I always imagine what it must have been like if you read their diaries when they mm-hmm. came upon a hill overlooking the Missouri and Niobrara River, and you just see this landscape unfolding like a carpet for as far as you can see, and it's very beautiful and very haunting and completely different than anything Lewis and Clark had ever seen before. And they found that there were Native tribes there, and what they also found was that the year before they arrived, they arrived in 1804, what they saw firsthand and what they learned about, in 1803, the smallpox epidemic had come to the Ponca village and killed more than half of the Ponca people. Uh, They lived in enclosed uh, huts during the winter, and this was a super spreader. Uh, and it wiped out more than half of the tribe, and Lewis and Clark in their diaries and their journals are mortified and uh, really just overwhelmed with the degree of death that the smallpox epidemic had taken on the Ponca, and they make great note of that in their diaries and journals. Okay. Um, And I suppose that had been spread spread to them by... Various trappers and explorers, or other tribes, or how did the smallpox? Yes, yes, yeah. mostly uh, from from there was a flourishing flourishing fur trade mm-hmm. uh, at the time, and there was a, a very very intense, often deadly duel between the British and the French to capture the native fur trade. So there were fur trading posts that were set up and down the Missouri, up and down the Mississippi, some of the the branches of those two great rivers. And uh, there were uh, really flourishing trading posts in which Native people and some of the fur uh, trade people uh, came in very close contact. There are many, many... uh, French names scattered throughout South Dakota mm-hmm. and the reservations in South Dakota that derive from the marriages of French men and Native women. Mm-hmm. Uh, both both Nebraska and the Dakotas uh, have many, many, many French uh, uh, names as a result of those posts, mm-hmm. and that's where uh, that's where the diseases came from. Okay. And they had no; there was absolutely no resistance against it. If that got loose within a tribe, uh, it just wreaked, uh, it wreaked havoc. Uh, they had no, no resistance against those diseases whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Lewis and Clark certainly were very aware of that. You talk about the Omaha. What are the, some of the other tribes in the area? And, and I guess, again, some scene setting. What's the context of their relations with other tribes in the area? Well, there were five tribes that once were all one tribe, and they lived in the Michigan woods. 
And the Ponca were one of those five tribes. The Omaha was a, a second of those five tribes. And they called the northern Michigan woods their home for many, many, many decades. And over time, those five tribes began migrating through a series, a network of rivers and streams, north and northwest. And over time, they got to uh, eastern, northeastern Nebraska. And uh, the uh, Omaha decided to stay put, and the Ponca went farther north and west. And then when they got to the Niobrara, they really loved that valley, that mm-hmm. Niobrara River Valley, and they stayed, they stayed there. And the five tribes that were once one in Michigan, they each ended up in a different spot. Uh, but generally in the Dakota, Nebraska, Iowa, Kansas area. Yeah, uh, but the Omaha and the Ponca were almost like cousins, and they didn't live too far apart, and uh, there was a lot of relationship between those two, uh, those two tribes, and that would figure in to uh, Standing Bear and his eventual escape uh, from the Oklahoma Reservation when he was taken in by the Omaha in the in, in the March of 1879. Okay. Well, let's talk about Standing Bear. Um, tell me a little bit about him and as a, what's his role in the tribe, and um, yeah. what kind of time frame now are we talking about when we talk about? Standing yeah, we're Bear? talking. Well, well, the Standing Bear story really catches fire is eighteen seventy seven. Okay, we're talking about January eighteen seventy seven. Seven hundred and fifty Ponca are camped in their winter village on fish the Fishmel Village along the Niobrara River. It's January 1877. There are nine, there's one principal chief uh, of the 750 Ponca named White Eagle, and there are a number of sub-chiefs. Standing Bear is probably the most powerful of the sub-chiefs. They are encamped in their winter village in 1877 when out of the blue, out of nowhere, comes a strange white man from of all places, the Upper East Side of New York, and he calls all the Ponca together they have a translator in their winter village, January 1877, and he makes the astounding announcement that the Great White Father in Washington, D.C. wants Standing Bear and all of the Ponca, all of the Ponca people, to pack up as soon as they can with their belongings and start walking to a place called the Indian Territory, which would later become Oklahoma. Hmm. And... When this was translated, the Ponca had no idea what he was even talking about. They knew nothing about a place called the Indian Territory. What they did know is that they had lived on this beautiful Niobrara River Valley homeland with their burial grounds in the white bluffs of the Missouri River for more than 100 years, and not one U.S. Senate treaty, but two U.S. Senate treaties had decreed that they were the legal occupiers of this reservation land. Mm -hmm. And now there was a strange white man telling them they had to pack up and move. And Standing Bear said, no, we are not moving. And his brother, the chief enforcer of the tribe, 6'4", 250 pounds, Mm -hmm. big snake, would have been a great uh, defensive end for Nebraska (laughs) uh, 150 years later. Yeah. They were uh, thrown in the back of a Ricky Buckboard wagon uh, and driven up uh, the Missouri to Fort Randall and thrown in a prison. And uh, after about five days, 
the U.S. cavalry was brought in. They encircled the village. They began cutting off all food. And then after uh, three days, they cut off all water. And after five days, the very young and the very old began to die. No matter what chief you're talking about, no matter what tribe you're talking about, there was always one paramount goal, one paramount virtue that every chief had to have, and that was the welfare of his people. And when Standing Bear found out that they were dying, uh, he relented and agreed to move uh, to this place called this abstract area called the Indian Country. And uh, later that spring, uh, they began walking the 550 miles from their winter village where it was very cold and very snowy. And in July of 1877, they arrived uh, in Oklahoma in a kind of heat and humidity and climate that they had never encountered before. That's when devastation occurred. Uh, The Ponca always knew who they were because they knew where they were. They could identify every tree, every rock, every plant, the best catfishing holes in the Niobrara River. Their tie to the land was their identity. They knew who they were because they knew where they were. And now when they looked out onto this scorched red earth of Oklahoma with 100 degrees and humidities they'd never encountered, they didn't know who they were because they didn't know where they were. Mm -hmm. They were dumped unceremoniously on this scorched red earth, no no housing, no food, no farming implements, just to fend for themselves. So they gathered in creeks and streams and riverbanks because that's where the water was, that's where the firewood supply was, and it also where clouds of mosquitoes were. Yeah. And within the first year upon their forced removal to Oklahoma, more than a third of the tribe died that first year from malaria, which there was no medicine for, no help for. Some weeks, entire families, five, six, seven people in a family, all died at once and were buried in mass graves. And in Christmas week of 1878, Standing Bear's only son, a 14-year-old boy by the name of Bear Shield, lay curled in a fetal position in a canvas army tent, dying of malaria. But before his eyes closed in death, he begged his father, the chief, to return his body to those sacred, one of the seven sacred burials on the white cliffs of the Missouri River on the South Dakota-Nebraska border. He begged his father to promise him he would do that before his eyes closed in death. And on the afternoon of early January day in 1879, Standing Bear wrapped the body of his only son in a buffalo robe, his best clothes, put him in the back of a wagon, and he and 29 others with no winter clothing, no money, and no food, they began walking from north-central Oklahoma to the South Dakota-Nebraska border to keep that promise. At that point in American history, the government of the United States had entered into 374 treaties with the Native American people, and they had broken all 374. 
but Standing Bear was not going to break the promise that he had made his son. And for three and a half grueling months, the day they left, the wind chill was 19 below. For three and a half grueling months, uh, they walked uh, from north central Oklahoma to eventually the village of their cousins, the Omaha. Okay. And that's when the real core of this story uh, begins to accelerate. Right. So that walk, that venture, that uh, experience in the um, devastating cold of the Great Plains, uh, yeah. it, it is kind of amazing. We don't think in this day of social media and so forth, and you're very well uh, familiar with this from your profession and so forth, that the similar things that are in the climate and journalism at the time uh, with newspapers, I suppose the Omaha World Herald was a was going in 1879, 1880, and other newspapers certainly were, and and Standing yeah. Bear's Trek gets some coverage. And I, I think part of the book here was interesting in seeing how he, how this action of his drew friends uh, and plenty of sympathy that winds up being part of his uh, success in the end. I was wondering if you could go into who those friends were and and how that kind of comes about. Yes, this is, this is, where, the, this is where the story is just like a 10-shot Roman candle. You couldn't make this up. <laughs> it's absolutely insane that this occurred. This right. man has just walked 550 miles with 29 others, including 11 women, yeah. to honor the deathbed promise he had made his 14-year-old son. He's with the Omaha. The Omaha is shocked at how they look. They're half dead. And in three days, uh, the soldiers find out that these renegades who had left without permission from their Oklahoma reservation uh, were in the Omaha village, and so a uh, detachment of soldiers was sent. They rounded up Standing Bear and uh, the 29 others, and they marched them to Fort Omaha. In late March, in late March of 1879, they walked them across the lower parade ground, and standing on the Brigadier General's steps, of his house is Brigadier General George Crook, mm -hmm. the highest-ranking military man west of the Mississippi. And he's standing on the porch watching these bedraggled string of Ponca walking across the lower parade ground, and he is absolutely shocked at what he sees. He sees people who are emaciated to the point of near death. He sees women walking across, in his view, who have black clumps of skin hanging from their wrists and their elbows like charred bacon. They are so severely frostbitten from the walk, and they are barely able to walk. And the humanitarianism of this man begins to flower in a way that is at the heart of the story in many ways. He's appalled. He's disgusted. He's sickened at what has become to these human beings as they're marched into the stockade. And he asks what has happened. He finds out more information. He finds out who they are. And the more he learns about the reason they left is because the chief had promised to bury his son, the more compelled he feels to do something. And so what he ends up doing, the highest-ranking military man west of the Mississippi, after about a week... He saddles up a horse after midnight, 
And in the cover of darkness, he rides three miles south of Fort Omaha, gets off his horse, ties it up, sees that there's a yellow lantern in the window of the house he stopped at, knocks at the door, and the assistant editor of what would become the Omaha World Herald, a gentleman by the name of Thomas Henry Tibbles, opens the door. General Crook looks at him and says, Thomas, I think I've got a story you might be interested in. Wow. Well, Henry Tibbles was very interested in the story, and General Crook arranges for him to interview Standing Bear and some of the other sub-chiefs through an interpreter, and Tibbles tells that story, and it starts to get a following in Omaha as people are appalled at the government for arresting a man whose only crime was to try and bury his son, mm -hmm. and that story jumps uh, across the Missouri it goes into Iowa, it jumps across the Mississippi, it gets into Chicago, it gets into Boston, Baltimore, Washington, New York, and it starts to get a lot of traction because it's just right out of drama school 101. Mm -hmm. uh, you kind of have good guys and bad guys. You have a grieving father, a dead son, and uh, much of Omaha is just galvanized by the story, including a gentleman by the name of Andrew Jackson Poppleton. You can't make these names up. If you were in any kind of trouble in Omaha in the spring of 1879, whether it was from jaywalking or murder, the lawyer you would want representing you in a court of law was Andrew Jackson Poppleton. He was the first lawyer admitted to the bar in the history of Nebraska. He's a former mayor of Omaha. And at that time, he was the general counsel for the Union Pacific Railroad. He reads about this story that Thomas Henry Tibbles had wrote based on an interview set up by 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 the highest-ranking uh, military man west of the Mississippi, mm -hmm. and Andrew Jackson Poppleton is enthralled. He wants to take the case. Mm -hmm. And he arranges a meeting with Standing Bear, and he agrees to try and create new law in the history of the United States by having a Native American ask the court for a writ of habeas corpus, in effect, the opportunity for an American Indian to go to court and to sue the government of the United States for his freedom, something that had never been done in the history of the United States. Mm -hmm. Twelve years earlier, a black man in St. Louis by the name of Dred Scott, mm -hmm. a slave, had gone into federal court in St. Louis for the same reason. He asked the court to free him. And in a very famous 7-2 to decision, the Dred Scott case, the, the, the head of the Supreme Court, Roger Taney, famously wrote in rejecting his plea to be free that a Negro has no rights a white man is bound to accept. And now 12, hour, uh, 12 years later, we have a Native American following in Dred Scott's path and Andrew Jackson Poppleton, his lawyer, successfully gets a writ of habeas corpus, and now his client, an American Indian chief, has the opportunity to establish new law and to start Native Americans 
on the path to citizenship. Mm-hmm. And all of this is going to unfold in an Omaha courtroom on the third floor of a brick Yellowstone building on the corner of 15th and Dodge on May 1st, 1879. Wow. And that's what happens. It goes to trial. Okay. And when, when General Crook knocks on the reporter's door, does he say, hey, this is on background, or does he say, you can use my name? How does that How's that happen? Uh, yeah, I think it was. I mean, I, I uh, there's no transcript of what happened, but clearly the impression is it's on background. Yeah, and uh, they made an agreement. Thomas Henry Tibbles and Andrew Jackson Poppleton, they made an agreement that they would never disclose who the tipster was until after Crook died. Okay. Both of them, they were so astonished that a brigadier general in charge of enforcing the orders he had been given by his superior, Lieutenant General Philip Sheridan in Chicago, who had famously said years earlier, the only good Indian is a dead Indian, he ordered General Crook to turn their faces south and march them right back to Oklahoma, which Crook knew was a death sentence. So rather than do that... He rode under the cover of darkness to tip off Tibbles, hoping that a story in the paper would prevent him from having to carry out this order. And guess what? He succeeded. Yeah. And and I think it's important just for the audience to make the connection here. General Crook uh, fights an engagement in the summer, June of 1876, against Crazy Horse and Lakota Indians in southern Montana as a part of the overall campaign that Custer winds up and his command being killed in. So this is only, you know, less than four years later um, after that engagement and a few others. Right. Uh, that same commander is is doing an about-face. Yeah. Crook is, Crook is just an astonishing figure in this whole drama. Not only does he defy, as a military man, as a West Point graduate, as a veteran of many Indian wars, not only does he defy the orders of his superior... Not only does he ride under the cover of darkness to tip off the local reporter about the story, he then suggests, he is the one that suggests to the attorney, Andrew Jackson Poppleton, that he file a writ of habeas corpus. Right. That, that prompt came not from the legal community, it came from the military commander. Right. And that's what Poppleton did. And filing a writ of habeas corpus simply means that if that's accepted and a federal judge uh, takes the case, it means the government has to prove why it has the legal right to hold these prisoners. Mm-hmm. And in this case, the government had to prove why it thought it had the legal right to hold Standing Bear and the other Ponca prisoners uh, who were simply trying to bear Standing Bear's son. Right. So let's talk about the judge. I mean, it comes down to this gentleman here, Elmer Dundee. He has a very special case in his courtroom. He's got uh, the yeah. government kind of represented by General Crook sitting in there, and then yeah. also Standing Bear uh, in front of him, and he's the man who's going to weigh this decision. So let's tell us a little bit about Judge Dundee. Well, I mean, again, the irony is that this is a story, once once it starts to... Uh, uh, go over 
over the speed limit and really starts to hit 85 or 90 miles an hour, it's a story that just spins one irony on top of another. We've already talked about the triple irony of, uh, of Brigadier General Crook, and now we get to the, uh, the, the double irony of the, the judge. This is, a, this is the only federal judge in Nebraska. This is the only judge that Andrew Jackson Poppleton, Standing Bear's lawyer, this is the only judge. They have to, they have to find him, and they have to sell him on uh, granting a writ of habeas corpus. And the problem is that this is a frontier judge, this is a grizzly bear hunting judge, and this is an Indian-hating judge based on his past rulings. Hmm. So they can't find him. He's out grizzly bear hunting. One of his best friends is Buffalo Bill Cody. Sure, absolutely. So Judge Elmer Dundee, only federal judge in Nebraska, uh, desperately needs to be found to hear this landmark case, but where is he? He's out in the wilderness. They send out Andrew Jackson Poppleton through his contacts, sends out a tracker, a scout, and after X number of days, he finds Judge Dundee. He conveys the message from Poppleton. Dundee eventually comes back, and he listens to the plea to grant a writ of habeas corpus, and out of the blue, he grants it. Mm-hmm. He grants it. So now there's an official legal document called Crook, I'm sorry, Standing Bear versus Crook. Crook, who is the hero in many ways of this story, because of the way the law has to work, and Standing Bear has to sue the government for his freedom, so they have to put down uh, the defendant's name, and in this case, uh, that defendant is Brigadier General George Crook. Mm -hmm. So now that Judge Dundee has agreed to take the case, it's codified, it's there, Standing Bear versus Crook, and it begins on May 1st, and it goes for two full days. The courtroom is just buzzing, it's packed. These uh, patrons of the law and uh, the courtroom observers have been reading about it in the precursor to the World Herald, courtesy of Thomas Henry Tibbles, for weeks. And finally, on May 1st, the gavel bangs, Judge Dundee calls the court to order, and there is this remarkable two days that unfolds that uh, sets precedent. It has never unfolded before in an American uh, in an American courtroom. The basic gist is that the defense, on behalf of General Crook, is arguing that the judge has grievously erred because no Indian has ever had standing in a federal court. And no Indian, because he's not a citizen, can file a writ of habeas corpus. So the judge has grievously erred in even granting the Indian uh, chief access to a federal court. Mm-hmm. And the other side is saying, look, the law says any person or party can file a writ of habeas corpus. It doesn't say anything about having to be a citizen. So the only issue before you, Judge Dundee, is whether or not this middle-aged Ponca chief sitting before you is a person. Right. That's all you have to decide. If you decide that he's a person, then he has legal standing, and he has every right to sue. Uh, And after two... 14-hour days, the trial ends, 
And for 10 days, Judge Dundee sits in his chamber pondering the most complicated case he's ever had. And on May 12, 1879, for the first time in the 103-year history of the United States, this grizzly bear hunting, previously Indy Haney judge, decrees in favor of standing bear mm-hmm. that he has to be considered a person. And he is. By, he uses Webster's Dictionary to define a person. He includes this in his ruling. And he decrees that this man is entitled to standing in court and to the same constitutional privileges as the more fortunate white race. And this is breaking with all American history, it establishes for the first time that a uh, Native American does have access to the federal courts, just mm-hmm. as the 14th Amendment uh, provides. Mm-hmm. And it begins the long journey from a courtroom in Omaha in 1879 to 1924, when Native Americans, for the first time in nation's history, are granted the rights of citizenship. Right. But this was the lead domino that fell right. on that long road that would end in 1924. And as a result, Standing Bear, over time, becomes this Native American civil rights icon right. because of all the firsts that were accumulated during this whole sequence that you would be really hard-pressed to make up. Yeah. What's the response? I mean, it doesn't wind up in the Supreme Court. It just kind of dies there, or it starts its life there, I guess. It's its legal life. There's no appeal. Uh, the Army chooses not to appeal. Uh, why? Yeah, they... The, the, the uh, government did a very uh, smart thing. Right. And what they did that was strategically smart from a legal standpoint is they huddled up and they calculated the advantages and disadvantages of appealing this case, and they concluded it was much better to just take this hit, suck it up, and not appeal. Because right now, if they just let it go, it would be regionalized, and it would be kind of self-contained. But if they appealed it uh, at the federal level and it went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled in Dundee's favor, then it would become the uniform law of the land and everybody would be coming to court, Mm -hmm. and they didn't want to risk that happening. So they thought by not appealing it, they could uh, engage in a kind of regional self-containment and not let this spread, uh, not let a brush fire become a raging wildfire. And they were very successful in doing that. As I said, it wasn't until 1924. Right. Uh, but, but, you know, the genie was out of the bottle exactly. uh, in Omaha in May of 1879, and uh, Standing Bear was that genie. Yeah. What's Sheridan's reaction? To, and he, he never figures out that Crook is the leak? You know, I don't know what Sheridan's reaction was. I don't know. I, I could never find, uh, find that uh, on the record, but yeah. one can only imagine what Sheridan's reaction was. Well, you know, Dundee, if you read his, his multi-page uh, pronouncement, it's yeah. just very beautifully written. It is, and it, yeah. It debunks 
each of the five major offenses of the defense team. It just takes them one at a time, and in very meticulous, clean language, it just takes them apart. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's as, uh, it's just a very interesting uh, legal document coming from that source, but I was never able to find out what uh, what Brooks' superiors uh, thought of it, and what we know for a fact is they never found out during his lifetime that he was the the source of both uh, of both leaks, uh, one to the reporter and one to the attorney. Yeah, well, that's amazing. He's he's a deep throat of the eighteen eighties. Met secretly and agreed they would never divulge that information until after Crook's death. Right. Well, um, the rest of the book is is kind of a fascinating. Um, Stroll through uh, Standing Bear's tour of uh, East Coast cities, Philadelphia, Boston, and so forth. And um, again, people, he and uh, the reporters and his network of growing friends are able to fundraise based on all the publicity about all this. It's astonishing to see the uh, pity that is engendered due to uh, his story. Uh, rightly so, and and how he wins out uh, so many friends, and then ultimately wins his case. And so, in the end, what happens to his son? I guess that's the real money question: is is he able well, to? Well, you know what what happened to his son is that his son, Standing Bear, um, upon the judge's decision, was released from the stockade, and he and his followers continued on to their old hunting grounds, their old village, and Standing Bear did bury the bones, the bones of his son. He did bury them, but nobody knows where, and anybody, and there are a lot of people who claim they know where, but they are, uh, they are not telling the truth, mm-hmm. because nobody knows exactly where Standing Bear buried the boy, and he okay. wanted to make make sure that nobody did know. Yeah. He he told his his people that that he had done what he had come to do and he had buried the bones, but he didn't disclose where and okay. nobody really knows uh, okay. where the bones were bear shield uh, are to this day. Mm-hmm. But he was able to do what he set out to do and that right. uh, undoubtedly was of great satisfaction. Right. He was free to keep his promise to his son. Yes, exactly. Um, right. He had fulfilled his he had fulfilled his promise. Yeah. And um and he he lived uh, a very a very quiet life after that. I mean, I think uh uh things began to break in his favor. There was a commission set up uh to determine whether or not the Ponca should be allowed to return to their uh homeland, the, the lands that they had been dragged off of and forcibly marched bayonets to their back from uh, the Niobrara to, to Oklahoma. Uh, a federal commission was established, and they determined in the end that the Ponca people could decide if they wanted to stay in the South in Oklahoma or if they wanted to rejoin Standing Bear and his followers in the North Country. Uh, so most of them ended staying up in Oklahoma because they were exhausted 
they were tired. Things had started to get a little better. They were getting farming implements. They had their homes now. And it was just too much of a burden in the 1880s to uh, go that 550 miles again. But, but uh, a fair number of them did join Standing Bear because it was their sacred land and they wanted to go home. Right. Um, and Standing Bear uh, was given an allotment. He was given an allotment. The Dawes Act uh, came in in the 1880s. And that was a very complex, complicated uh, situation. Uh, the whole idea of owning land was a totally foreign concept to Native Americans. They didn't, they didn't understand how anybody could own land. So when the Dawes Act came out awarding 160 acres to the head of every Native family, it was very bewildering. And uh, the government's hope that those 160 acres, they could learn how to farm, become white uh, gentlemen farmers, and be assimilated into the greater society, and everybody lives happily ever after. It didn't work out that way. Right. But Standing Bear got his allotment. He, he lived very peacefully and very happily on his allotment until his death in the early 1900s. And um, mm. he is buried uh, on that allotment that is now owned by somebody else, and that's one of the last items of business that the Ponca people need to take care of. They need to um, have a memorial at that gravesite and, yeah. uh, and, and note that that's where Standing Bear is buried. That hasn't happened yet, but there are people working on it. Okay. Well, then let's let's walk back to the beginning. I guess after all this is said and done, what would Thomas Jefferson think of Standing Bear? I think uh, what Thomas Jefferson would think is that justice was served. Mm-hmm. I think Thomas Jefferson, in his heart of hearts, would have, once you remove him from the, 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 the office, once you remove him from uh, all of the political, all of the political dynamism, once that's off the table, then humanity trumps politics. And I think that would have happened with Jefferson, because I think, unlike Andrew Jackson, that he had a he had a, a humanitarianism about him that would have understood Standing Bear uh, was a hero. Mm-hmm. That Standing Bear uh, Standing Bear became a free man. Right. And it was Thomas Jefferson who wrote the Declaration of Independence. Right. So how could he be uh, down on Standing Bear for achieving his freedom when that's what he wanted for his country? Right. Right. Uh, I think he would have been very happy embracing the concept of humanity and freedom as refracted through the story of this, in my mind, heroic American chief who who embodied every value that Jefferson valued. Mm-hmm. Courage, freedom, stamina, honesty, integrity, hard work. He checks every box that Jefferson checks. Right. And Jefferson would have seen that in a way that I think others might not have. Yeah. The 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 takeaway here is is that this the story of how a peaceful middle-aged Ponca chief brought the United States government to its knees without ever firing a shot, shooting an arrow, or unsheathing a scalping knife is relevant because it's a story about who we are as a people. 
And these stories illustrate what it means to be heroic, what it means to be courageous, resolute, to fight for something far bigger than yourself, and to keep going even when it appears that all is helpless. Mm-hmm. And when that kind of courage wins out, then the story of that courage becomes an inspirational spark to not only the Ponca and not only other Native people, but to all of us, to all Americans. Right. To me, that's that's what this story is about. Well, and you tell it so uh, brilliantly. And uh, so just to make sure people know that the title of the book is I Am a Man, Chief Standing Bear's Journey for Justice. Author is Joseph Starita that we've been speaking to. And uh, Joe, I look forward to reading your other books and perhaps having you back on History 605. Thanks for joining us today. Ben, I want to thank you uh, and your listeners very much for giving me this opportunity and uh, I just think uh, that it's a, really, it's a really great American story, not because I wrote it, but because he lived it. Right. And um, it's a story we can celebrate because it has so many values, love of family, love of son, love of country, uh, all of the values that we, uh, all Americans, embrace. So if we can see it through a, another lens in a different way and it comes to the same... Uh, finish line, then we're all the richer for it. Absolutely. So thank you for allowing me this opportunity, and uh, I hope your listeners uh, enjoyed uh, our conversation. I'm sure they will. Thank you, Joe. We'd like to thank Howard and Dorothy Groover for their passion for history and the support of the South Dakota State Historical Society. It's through gifts such as theirs that we're able to tell South Dakota's history. We'd like to thank our partner, South Dakota Public Broadcasting, and most importantly, we'd like to thank you for listening. Please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to find podcasts. We'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode of History 605.